0: Hello, and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter, which you can subscribe to over at www.energyflux.news. And uh, if you're interested in receiving energy news and uh, exclusive commentary on breaking news events, deep dives on really pertinent energy transition topics, then you might be interested in subscribing with a premium membership to energy flux um, and if you were to do that between now and next wednesday then you will be able to lock in a huge lifetime discount because energy flux is celebrating its first year as a premium newsletter so every year that you subscribe um every year that you renew you'll you'll uh, that discount will stay with you um so if you head on over to www.energyflux.news then you can check out all the subscription options. Now, um, I was hoping to be joined today by uh, a couple of special guests from quite an interesting company, Utilita Energy, which is uh, one of the last remaining um, independent energy retailers in the UK. It's it's been a really tough year for independent energy retailers, and um, Utilita has managed to, to cling on um, despite and weather this this terrible storm in the wholesale energy markets. Um, and uh, I was going to be joined by CEO Bill Bullen. He pulled out because he's got a chest infection, can't speak, and um, he was going to be replaced by Utilita's chairman, uh, a chap called Derek Licorice, who is um, he's quite an interesting guy, and ho- hopefully I'll get him back onto the show uh, on another date. But um, Derek is the uh, he's the, the the chairman of the UK government's fuel poverty advisory group and uh, that would have been a very pertinent conversation to be having right now because um, energy bills are going through the roof right now, we've just had a massive increase in the cost of um, the typical energy bill because the, the price cap that the UK government imposes on um, on the, the energy retail sector, is um, it's been increased by more than 50% uh, as of the first of this month and people are being bled dry by this um people who uh were you know on the cusp of um uh, of, of being able to afford their bills are being pushed into fuel poverty people who are comfortable are being pushed towards the edge and um like speaking from personal experience i mean i i i, I keep a really close eye on my uh, my smart meter now because um you can you can see the cost racking up every day whenever i have the 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 gas boiler on to warm up some water to 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 bathe the kids or to to run the dishwasher or boiling the kettle for a cup of tea or putting on the toaster to 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 make some toast it's 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 incredible like just the seeing the the pennies stacking up into pounds and at the end of every day looking at it and thinking jesus i've i've spent you know four or five pounds on energy today and that was a normal day when I was trying to be quite conservative and it was a bit chilly and I had a bit of heating on for some of the time, but you know definitely not kind of just wasting energy and uh, and, and the, the cost is, is just phenomenal um just just to see how how the expenses are now are really racking up um on on the typical british fuel bill it's it's quite scary and and what's particularly scary about this is um th- this the, the increases that we've just been uh, subjected to um, on the energy price cap increase from the 1st of April, that only covers um, losses or, it, it, you know, the, we're paying more to, to, to pay more for wholesale energy price increases, but these price increases occurred about six months ago. They cover the period, I think, until um, until October 2021. So there's a lag in the 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 rate at which the the increases in the wholesale cost of electricity and gas in wholesale markets are passed through to our bills, and so i 'm thinking you know we, we 've had a more than fifty percent increase on the the, the typical bill um, just now, but that doesn 't cover the absolutely unbelievable increases in wholesale energy prices that we 've seen since October, so when the price cap gets reviewed again in October or potentially sooner because the regulator is thinking about um, increasing the or reviewing the the price cap more frequently to keep up with what is becoming an extremely erratic wholesale energy market Um, uh, when the next increase happens then it's going to cover the period from October to April and that's when we've really seen prices gone from being merely Stratospheric to being utterly intergalactic i mean i 'm running out of superlatives to describe the the cost of energy right now in the u k um, and we 're going to have to start finding some new ones because um, the price rises are going to just keep going up and up and up because um, there 's this enormous financial hole at the center of the energy retail segment and and that is really why um, why we 've seen. So many independent utility companies go bust. And I've talked about this on previous podcasts because they um, they might have hedged some of their exposure ahead, um, but a lot of them didn't cover their long-term supply commitments to their customers with hedges in the wholesale energy markets to, to, to cover those liabilities. Um, and so what happened was they were buying, you know, uh, in benign markets, maybe a month ahead, uh, electricity and power And uh, the cost of capital was low and the barriers to entry were very low. So you saw these lots of new players come in and fight for market share by um, kind of undercutting each other, race to the bottom. And that was all fine when markets were benign. And then, of course, we saw the post-COVID recovery, the prices went crazy. All the independents went to the wall, um, all the unhedged ones did. And we've seen a spate of of retail uh, failures um and uh, so we've only got a clutch of, of ind- independence left uh, so yeah hopefully utility will come back they've promised that they will um be a bit more organized next time hopefully and uh, and a bit in a bit better health as well of course um to be able to to join me on the podcast to, to talk about um both you know their financial condition and how they managed to weather this this storm but but also to talk about some of the wider societal implications of these extraordinary increases in energy prices that we are witnessing right now um and uh, and like i say you know um, the 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 fuel poverty issue is going to become a massive political issue it is already uh, but i think we're only just starting to see um that kind of play out in the political arena um it's going to get worse i don't think it's getting quite as many column inches as it deserves yet um but i think inevitably it will because as more people are pushed into fuel poverty and are forced to make these horrendous choices between um you know feeding their kids and turning on the heating and giving them a hot bath then um this is just going to you're going to have kind of grassroots pressure from people who are just saying you know this this system is not working for me you know like i literally i can't survive um, on the way things are working. And, and the government, of course, has been very clear that there's only a limited amount of support they're ever going to make available. They're not going to to shield consumers from the insanity that's going on in wholesale energy markets, these globalised energy markets that we are subjected to, um, which, which influence so much of the prices that we pay here in the UK. Um, and uh, so something has to give. Something has to give between... Um, uh, being able to source the energy that we need to keep the economy running, and being able to protect people from um, essentially having to, to to make these awful decisions about about you know what's most important, you know which of these with these basic necessities is most important to you when they are all basic necessities, and we should be really only having to make a decision between in a modern 21st century first world country we should be able to make decisions between things like, well, that's a luxury. I can do without that, but, but I can, I can, uh, uh, I can still cover the basics. Um, but you know, I, I don't think that, you know, being warm is a luxury. I don't think that being able to, um, eat decent food or eat anything is a luxury. Um, it shouldn't be. Um, and I think that being able to be mobile, having mobility access to transport services that, that are effective, um, and, uh, uh, reliable um, i think that's that's not a luxury either these are these are basic things that we should be able to provide to people um in this country and i think it's just it's getting to the point where i'm i'm getting quite kind of shocked and angry frankly about about the um the, the just the the deterioration in in living standards really this goes beyond energy um it's it's becoming really uh, it's it's biting a lot of people when it really um it really shouldn't be uh, they're they're, they're uh, certainly like those who are most in need should be getting the targeted support that they require, um, and, uh, and there should be a, a, a certainly a more urgent review of, um, of of what can be done to to alleviate the pressure on on all lower income um, and even middle income families um, at this this time. Um, so, and that, that kind of brings me on to the topic of today's show which is uh, nominally about the UK government's uh, security of supply strategy um they of so the energy the british energy security strategy I should call it by its proper name uh, and this thing's been in the works for weeks and weeks and weeks and uh, it's really uh, it's just such a huge disappointment it's it just seems to have been thrown together without any uh there, there, there's no kind of sense of strategic purpose around this thing um it was chucked out as an html upload onto the government the gov.uk website um normally you get for the strategy you get like a properly presented pdf that's been um it's it's been kind of fine-tuned and it's well presented and it makes sense and this thing it's it's like it i can't help but but really say that it, it kind of reflects the, the, the casual attitude that, that our government takes towards everything. Um, and I have to say that I really think that stems from a cult of personality at the top of our government. And um, you, you just have to read the kind of, the kind of rhetorically heavy, detailed light uh, rambling um, prelude to the strategy, written by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, to to get a feel of of like how this this has been cobbled together by somebody who just doesn't care about the details. Um, it's it, it there there are a lot of holes in there, but um, it, it doesn't take very long to identify any, um, and uh, it's it, it's it's just a very uh, disappointing read, but. But on that point, so there's a, there's a quote from from this uh, this this opening. I was going to say preamble, more like a shambles, written by by Johnson, um, because it's just it really leapt out of me as like this this guy is not a detailed man at all. Uh, so, um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson says in the opening to the uh, Energy Security Strategy, the first step to in- improving um, energy security is to improve energy efficiency reducing the amount of energy that households and businesses need. So far, so good. Agree 100%. But he then goes on to say, But the long-term solution is to address our underlying vulnerability to international oil and gas prices by reducing our dependence on imported oil and gas. And he goes on to say, The cleanest and most secure way to do this is to source more of it domestically with a second lease of life for our North Sea. So on the one hand he's saying yeah the, the first step to improving energy security is to use less of it and that's right but that's somehow then uh put in kind of relegated as to into like a kind of stopgap measure when the 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 long term solution is to produce more fossil fuels in the UK now don't get me wrong i'm not uh, a kind of extreme anti-fuel activist who thinks we should shut down all oil and gas production tomorrow uh, or even within sort of five or 10 years. We're going to need fossil fuels for decades um, at a diminishing overall volume, but they will need to be there at an affordable price and uh, dependable and available for many, many years because the global economy and the British economy simply cannot function without them. And we are lucky to have some um, uh, declining, but still significant volumes of oil and gas being produced in the North Sea. Um, it's a mature basin, but it is still uh, uh, a mainstay of the British economy, and um, and it is extremely important um, both for you know keeping the economy going, but also for the jobs it it it, uh, it sustains um, uh, uh, all over the UK, um, and the uh, you know the the, the the export revenue that it brings in, or the, the the tax take that it brings into the treasury. These are all important things so i 'm not against producing oil and gas from the north Sea absolutely um, and there, there's and I actually think that one of the good things about this strategy is that it does adopt a more uh, a kind of more nuanced approach towards North Sea oil and gas and it talks about um, the need to support near term stronger production of oil and gas from the north sea i think that's that 's probably the right approach to take um, on the balance of things but <laughs> Where I, I get really unstuck is this line in, in, in the preamble that I just quoted you, where Boris Johnson talks about, you know, that, that being a long-term solution to addressing our underlying vulnerability to international oil and gas prices. Because, um, you know, if if you accept that um, oil and gas are globally commoditized um, air fuels and you accept that these things are priced according to the global benchmark or the uh, the the regional benchmark in the case of gas for Europe but that's increasingly um, determined by international global factors which I can go on to explain in a bit. Um if you accept that then you accept that no no even if we were to double oil and gas production from the North Sea overnight then it, you know the the impact on a, on a on a global basis would be a little bit more than a drop in the ocean and it wouldn't materially affect prices that we pay in the uk for the energy that we consume every day it wouldn't really bring down the price of petrol at the pumps it wouldn't bring down the price of gas that i'm burning in my boiler and it wouldn't bring down the price of electricity that i'm paying to run all my appliances right now i'm bringing you this podcast so i just don't understand how that can be a long-term solution to address our underlying vulnerability to international oil and gas prices. So let's look at some of the other things that it does include. The UK security energy security strategy, um, it's it's been widely criticized, uh, not just by me, by lots and lots of energy people from across the spectrum, I have to say, uh, for for really just the utter lack of near-term measures. So there is just this huge focus on long-term supply side power generation solutions which are not really solutions to energy security um it it, it it has to start with using less energy and 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 this strategy just it it, it it approaches everything from completely the wrong end it's taking a long-term supply-side approach to something that requires um really immediate fixes um and they don't come from the supply side, you know. Like, yes, having more power generation available today would be better than not because supply margins are tight, and I get that. That that is a a factor that's that's keeping power prices very high in wholesale um, the British wholesale energy market. I get that, um, but there are two problems with that. First of all, is that like you can't bring on more generation overnight, um, and and the second is that it's. It not all new generation and um, it comes with a cost attached to it there's a cost of capital it has to be repaid um, and there's a materials cost to to get new generation infrastructure up and running so this supply side focus it's it's uh it's, it's a massive shortcoming in the strategy and that just seems to be that that sort of sets the tone for the whole thing it's like you know what can we do in the year 2040 to address energy security and I, my, my response to that is: Well, what can we do today to address energy security? Because if we don't have energy security today, and we don't have it tomorrow, and we don't have it next year, or even for the next two or three years, then what point is there in talking about 2040? It needs an urgent intervention to um, to, to to keep energy supplies secure, stable, affordable, and clean, and uh, and and we, we're blatantly. Uh, failing on on all of those points at the moment um, i i can I can kind of accept a, uh, a temporary uh, relegation of emissions from the being the overarching priority um, if it means that security of supply is going to be ensured when when it might otherwise not be i i think there there is there is a legitimate trade off to be made over a short very short time limited period. Um, if you are talking about, you know, we have to make hard decisions in the energy sector, then yes, security of supply always has to trump emissions for as long as it has to, but not not beyond anything necessary, because emissions are extremely important to being under control. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, there there is there is a case for 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 increasing the supply side. But like I said, it's not going to make a difference today um, and on emissions. Then going back to the original point about using less energy and saving energy and demand side measures and preventing uh, the, uh, the, the, the loss of heat from our extremely leaky um, British housing, um, uh, British houses and flats, which are, uh, are just designed so incredibly poorly um, uh, that the, the, they're, 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 they're burning huge amounts of gas to keep them warm, and then all of that's leaking out of the roofs and windows. You know, addressing that could be a much quicker fix a much cheaper fix and it could save emissions as well so that trade off that i described where you know sometimes it's necessary yes it is sometimes necessary but if you were to really grasp the nettle on 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 efficiency on waste heat loss then you can kill two birds with one stone and this has been said over and over and over again for the whole time that i have been Looking at energy um, my entire career, even before that, you know, you know, like there's always been this conversation about, oh, if we could just fix our leaky housing stock, then, you know, all of our energy problems would be halved or or there would be a fraction of what they are today. And this, this same obvious advice has just been repeatedly and systematically overlooked by every single government that's been in power um, during my lifetime. There's been no real concerted effort um to 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 tackle this properly there have been some kind of stops and starts some programs worked a bit some didn't Um, and um and like the 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 current program that that, that's currently in uh that's currently active the energy company obligation the eco that's that seems to be um not delivering entirely on on that objective um, but but also there seems to be some some opposition at the treasury to to supporting eco um the the eco it's uh it's it's an obligation on utility companies the energy retailers who who sell us their energy um to to also uh, promote things like loft insulation boiler upgrades um things like double glazing which which we um, because they really do make a difference an immediate difference to the quality of life of people who live in these properties um, and their their personal economy the amount they're having to fork out on energy does go down um quickly and so that needs to be you know rolled out as a matter of urgency um that the eco that's that I think it's problematic I've I've, uh, I've I've read critiques of it saying that it's not really the the uh, uh the, the role of the energy companies to take on things like building maintenance and upgrades and I think there's there's merit in that argument because um, you know there are contractors out there who, who already do this work and uh, a lot of them are already affiliated with things like the local authority local government um, they have you know building management teams um, and local authorities are also in, in charge of building control which is the regulation that ensures that um, building upgrades are carried out according to to the required standard so I think that there probably is an argument to explore there about putting the onus on local authorities to be the ones who are in charge of making sure that housing stock is, um, is brought up to the 21st century standard that it should be held to in terms of energy efficiency. Um, and, uh, and that should be backed up by government funding, by taxpayer funds, because that's the only way that you're going to get um, the assistance that's required to the people who, who really need it most, because, because let's remember that, um, that the, 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 those who are most in fuel poverty are those who, who are not homeowners. They will be people who live in properties owned by a landlord or owned by the local authority. Um, and, uh, and those landlords who, ho- who ho- house people who are uh, in receipt of low-income benefits, then um, they are not incentivized in any way to uh, to to make the uh, the to, to shell out the, the the investment necessary to improve the energy efficiency of these buildings, um, and that's not just a problem for people who are on low incomes, of course. If you rent, then there is that kind of mismatch of incentives because the uh, the the the, uh, the, the landlord um, they you know they won't benefit financially from making from reducing you know my fuel bills as a tenant if I was a tenant. Um, So that that needs to be addressed. That needs to come. It is for the common good. It should come from, um, you know, a a taxpayer funded source um, because it's for the good of of society and it's for the good of people who can't afford it mostly. Um, And so I don't know why this, again, has also been ignored. And, you know, there's this idea of like paying for for these things by adding a levy onto the bill that everybody pays and then, you know, using that money to, to get the utility companies to then Pay for upgrades in people's homes, and and them then having to create their own supply chains and and, uh, and 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 relationship with the contractors. You can then carry out the work, and it seems very duplicative when when there isn't kind of active um, uh, economy and industry around that, which, uh, like I said, is kind of uh, uh, is overseen by the local authority. Um, so that needs to be completely reconsidered. Is like how. How we deal with things like, um, uh, you know, funding and realizing energy efficiency improvements in in the British housing stock, um, it, and it's never been more urgent. And it's not too late. You know, this stuff can still be done. It's just it just needs the government to to look at it with to take the right approach. And I don't understand why there should be any opposition within anybody um, in the Houses of Parliament because this should be something that receives. Uh, cross-party support, you know, energy efficiency, improving energy efficiency. I can't see how that could inspire anybody to have uh, uh, to take a negative view of, of what's trying to be achieved here, because it's, it's uh, you know, like the, the onshore wind thing. It's it, it's a real polemical issue in uh, in British politics, and that's uh, the, the, the opposition of backbenchers towards having turbines in my backyard in my constituency. That's why um, onshore wind is really uh, being overlooked in the energy security strategy. Um, But I just cannot understand why there's been no meaningful attempt to grasp the nettle on energy efficiency and uh, uh, waste heat loss um, in this strategy. It just seems to be like the most obvious place to start. Um, So, yeah, very, very disappointing on that front. Um, In terms of other things let's just have a very quick look at, um, at what else is in is in here uh, um, so nuclear nuclear power is back um, it never really went away but at the same time it's never really been resolved either um, so the UK government wants to have a, a massive push massive nuclear push um, and uh, they're talking about installing 24 gigawatts by 2050 and that seems really quite ambitious um like and beyond ambitious it just seems unrealistic because um like new nuclear uh, the, it it it's it it is like if you could choose a technology that is um like it's the most capital intensive prone to cost overruns and being delivered late then like nuclear is it uh, we have a very, very, very bad record in uh, in in, re- in modern history in the UK of delivering um, uh, new build nuclear power plants. The uh, Hinkley Point C project in Somerset, which is being delivered by EDF of France, running a decade late, it's about oh, I think probably a double the uh, the the cost that it was originally envisaged to be, um, and uh, that's that's based on the uh, I think it's the uh, the EPR. Uh, reactor design which will also be deployed at the sizewell c nuclear plant in suffolk and uh, there's a there's a big effort now to to get that project over the line to final investment decision within this parliament um well it says the government wants to get a a new nuclear plants over the over the line to fid in this parliament and uh, i think sizewell c is the main contender because it's so far down the uh the the kind of pre-construction development pathway that it seems to be the obvious candidate, um, but doing that is going to require a huge amount of support. Um, so so they're looking at instituting a new regulated asset base model, which basically means that the there's the, the, an interesting one. So the, the government wants to um, s- uh, start charging rate payers so ordinary, ordinary British consumers on their bills a levy for the cost to re- repay the cost of building this thing, um, but it's it it that will become payable when construction starts, which could be five, ten, even fifteen years before the first electrons get generated by this thing. So. So it, it, that, that's that's how the regulated asset-based model works. It socialises the risks of late delivery of cost overruns, um, and it seems it is seen as the best or only way of sweetening the deal to get to leverage private investment into these enormous infrastructure projects like a new nuclear power station. Um, the regulated asset-based model. The RAB model, it's used for, it's almost, it's like a kind of halfway house between it being a, you know, a, a kind of state funded national infrastructure project and a purely private one. It's this kind of middle ground where it's like, yes, yeah, private capital, but socializing all the risks. And um, the idea also is that it caps the rewards that can be uh, you know, the return on investment that, that the investors can can get from investing in in these sorts of projects um so there is a kind of quid pro quo there um but at the same time i think that exposing consumers to these kinds of risks and lever- and, and leveraging it onto bills um which of course are an extremely um uh, regressive way of clawing back funding um doing that is is uh, is is extremely uh concerning for 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 consumers because um you know th- we should be getting costs off the bills to begin with um and that's really another place where i think the uh, the kind of energy security and, and affordability should be focused policy initiatives should be focused on getting the cost of all the levies um off the bills because uh it's just driving up the price to um to to really unaffordable levels to to people right now um, if you were to take the the cost of things like the first uh, sort of the first few waves of, of, of uh, wind farms, which were subsidised under the renewables obligation, um, and you were to kind of grandfather those and put them onto taxation, uh, and you would also things uh, put things like the warm home discount, which gets socialised across um, a levy across all the other bills, um, and the cost of uh, like network upgrades and things, then uh, then you could really make uh, a significant chunk take a significant chunk off the the amount that people are having to pay on their bills um, and that would have the biggest effects on those people who are um, in fuel poverty because they pay a disproportionate amount of their m- monthly income on energy um, just because that's because that 's the regressive nature of energy bills it 's not designed like the tax system it 's designed according to how much you consume. That's a major shortcoming, which just isn't, it's just not even, it's barely acknowledged, let alone addressed in this uh, energy security strategy. Um, But yeah, the nuclear in 2050. So, you know, it's it's just this massive kind of disconnect between what's needed now and what might be needed in the future. Um, uh, So what else is in there? So there's this massive rollout of, of offshore wind, Um, the government wants to install, uh, wants to get to 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, which is, um, which sounds good, because before the target was 30 gigawatts, then it was 40 gigawatts, and now they've opted to to 50 gigawatts, um, up from 11 gigawatts today. Uh, And uh, of that 50 gigawatts by 2030, about five gigawatts will be from floating wind in deeper waters, which is great, you know, because these are... um, these These new projects floating wind turbines they 'll be able to access waters that are much deeper um and uh, so open up a resource that 's inaccessible to um to the old uh, kind of conventional foundation technology that drills the piles into the seabed um so so that 's that's that 's good you know like getting to fifty gigawatts by twenty thirty that would be a massive contribution from offshore wind um and uh, you you 'd see the contribution of wind and the power mix going frequently um above 50 percent i'd imagine if we were to achieve that probably much much more than that um probably even you'd have periods where it's pretty much all supplied by wind i think if we were to get to that but obviously only when the wind blows um and of course you're going to need backup generation for for when it doesn't um and that's a whole other topic um which you know which probably should be addressed in some detail in a document that purports to be a strategy about energy security because when the wind doesn't blow, then you need some security of supply. And at the moment, and for the foreseeable future, it's coming from gas-fired power generation. Um, and so that brings us on to the, this very, very tricky, knotty question of market design and marginal pricing. Now, this is something that I've written about quite a lot, um, both in Energy Flux and for other publications, and. This 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 issue of marginal pricing is really, really problematic, both in the UK and in mainland Europe, um, because you have this thing called pay as clear. Now, I'll explain what that is. So pay as clear is if you are a power generator and you are operating in the wholesale power market, then at any given time interval, you dispatch into the market uh or you bid what you you know the amount that you want to uh, to earn um from the you know you're able to the 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 lowest possible price that you're able to um uh to operate at let's say it's 30 pounds per megawatt hour um and everybody else bids in at the same time and um the uh the the, the cheapest bids are the ones that get to dispatch first Um, and then you kind of move up what's called the merit order so you go up and up and up to the more expensive more expensive until demand is satisfied for that period of time Um, whether this is like 15 minutes or half an hour it changes from market to market but basically when you get to the most expensive the marginal um, dispatching power generator um, that's that's that sets the price so if you kind of you have a whole load of wind and solar farms bidding in at maybe nothing or you know five or ten pounds per megawatt hour or whatever very very low prices because they don't have fuel costs they bid in these low prices um but if they're not covering 100 percent of demand you go up the merit order until you uh have you bring in other generators so you might have um biomass in the mix and once they're exhausted then you might also have uh, you'd have nuclear too, of course, which has also very low um, short-run marginal costs. So that has very low; that can bid in very affordably. But that can't again cover all of the the power generation needs at any given moment. So you then move into other things that do have fuel costs, like gas-fired power generators. And these gas-fired power generators have to cover the cost of their fuel, so they bid in much higher power prices into the mix, and they push up the marginal price, and that price which the price that settled that that marginal generator that satisfies the last remaining bit of demand on the power grid at any given moment that's the price that is paid to all of the generators so the nuclear power plant and the solar farms and the wind turbines that are bidding at you know four five six ten pounds per megawatt hour uh they all get paid what the gas generator bids at, the marginal generator. So the marginal generator might bid in at 60, 70, 80 with the price of gas being what it is today. It could easily, and we have seen it on many occasions now, in triple digits, you know, £100 a megawatt hour. That's what gets paid to all of the participants of the wholesale power market at any given moment. That is the problem with marginal pricing. And I don't think it's sufficiently well understood um in in energy circles this idea of marginal pricing because if you want to um, reduce the cost of energy then you need to stop setting the price of power by using the marginal molecule that's the you know the the most it's it's the the most expensive contributor to meeting demand at any given moment because because that's coming from the most expensive source at the moment, which is gas. Gas is, is, there's this enormous risk premium attached to the price of gas at the moment. And that's that's been rising since uh, the, the kind of global economy emerged from COVID lockdowns at the start of 2021. Um, they, the, the price of gas on wholesale markets has been rising since very, very strongly since last summer. Um, this kind of economic rebound we 've seen in china we've seen uh, across much of the developed world the, uh, the 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 supply of gas hasn't entirely kept up with that kind of rebound in demand and uh, that's pushed up the the global gas price so we 've seen it in asia we've seen it in um, in the uk we 've seen it in europe um, and uh, so, any importing region that is reliant on on gas imports has seen uh, a huge, huge, huge increase in um, in gas prices. Um, and so, so you have a market that is a power market that's designed to uh, to, to to settle uh, using marginal pricing, and it's relying on imported molecules of gas. Um, increasingly, because domestic production is um, is in kind of secu- secular decline, um, then then you're really uh, you know, that's that that's just that's just creating this structural exposure to the volatility of global markets and also the kind of geopolitical um, implications of things like the war in Ukraine, because that's obviously added a massive war premium to the the wholesale price of gas in the EU. You know, like barely a day goes by. When people aren't talking about will he, won't he? Putin cut off the gas or disrupt gas flows to Europe, and will they, or won't they? The EU member states agree to sanction Russian gas exports, and um, and so to an extent that that risk is being priced into the price, the cost of of, uh, of gas in wholesale European markets, and that that sets the price also in the UK. So even though we don't import. Very much gas at all from Russia. Um, I think it's only like just a handful of percent, maybe like four, five, six, seven percent from from Russia directly. We're still exposed to global pricing, and you know if if Russian molecules um, they don't uh, they they're, they're shut off. Whether it's you know Putin shutting off gas to uh, to spite the West, or whether it's the EU deciding to sanction. Russian gas and not import it anymore um, then that will have a, a, an extraordinary impact on on the price of, of gas that that we pay not just in Europe and not just in UK but around the whole world because here's the other thing it's that those gas molecules that come down the pipe from Russia they go from east to west and there is nowhere else for them to go so if if Europe doesn't buy Russia's gas, it gets shut in at the wellhead. There's only so much that Russia can use within Russia, and Russia does use, um, you know, a, like most of the gas that Russia produces is consumed domestically. Um, the second biggest use is um, is exporting west into Europe, and then a little bit uh, incre- increasingly large amounts, but still a very small proportion overall goes east towards China. There are uh, there's a new pipeline power of siberia and plans to expand that and to build more pipelines going to china um, but the uh, those pipelines to china they do not connect with the existing pipeline work that goes from siberia um across uh, western russia into poland through or through poland and through ukraine into germany and westwards into the rest of europe um those those wells they 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 only service one market and that's europe so if Europe doesn't buy the pipeline gas that's coming from Russia now, it gets shut in, and that means that on a net basis, on a global basis, the net balance of gas is um, is is tightened. So the supply-demand balances they tighten because there is less gas overall in the market. You know, if if Europe doesn't buy Russian gas, whether it's by Russia's doing or the European Union's doing, or whether maybe like the pipelines get get blown up in Ukraine or something you know or there's a technical fault whatever the reason is that if 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 Russian gas was to stop flowing into Europe then Europe European countries will turn to global markets to get more they will turn to uh, to the the only real available source of extra gas which is liquefied natural gas which is a globally traded commodity and you'll be putting european demand directly in competition with other importers, such as Japan, China, South Korea, Taiwan, and also South America, where we've seen um, periods of extremely um, strong buying appetite, strong demand from countries like Brazil, which rely on hydropower. And when there's a drought, they buy more LNG, liquid natural gas, and that pushes up the price. That draws the available cargoes that are in the Atlantic Basin. It draws them down to, uh, to, to Atlantic ports on the coast of Brazil rather than necessarily to Europe. So so there's this 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 extreme tight extremely tight balance already in in the global gas markets. And and we're seeing we, we you know we're seeing those being very tight as things are already. And that's with Russian gas flowing into Europe. So this is another thing I've been writing about a lot in energy flux is yes, you know, I fully fully understand why people would in Europe would want to, to 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 cut off um Russian flows of gas. And, you know, I think on a humanitarian basis, on a political basis, I, I am probably on the same page as people who are calling for that. Um and, you know, you just have to look at what's going on in Ukraine to to really identify with like it just the, the 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 kind of pure basic reasons for, for not wanting to to buy any more gas from Russia, because you know we really are financing the war in ukraine by by consuming gas that comes from russia um, but there, there, there will be implications from this. there will be enormous enormous um, knock on effects from um, from from not buying Russian gas from sanctioning Russian gas or from Russia shutting off the gas supplies to europe it would It would affect the entire global economy it would probably the effects would probably be so severe. That well, first of all, you're going to see even more consumption of, of less clean energy sources. So you know, coal consumption is going to spike, um, and in, in particularly in places like China um, and, uh, and and Japan as well, which is still heavily reliant on on coal. Um, but but you're also um, you're going to see Europe plunged into a, just a complete recession. I think I can't see any other way of avoiding enormous recession if if Russian gas was to stop flowing because. You know, it's one thing to kind of turn to global markets and say, right, we're going to just outbid China. Yeah, we're going to outbid China this time. Normally China outbids Europe, and Europe kind of is like the marginal destination for for any excess fuel that LNG cargoes that, that Asia can't consume. Yeah, it's one thing to say, we're going to outbid, outbid China. But, like, what, what does that mean? Uh, well, that means that you're going to be paying, you know, rates that... the For for liquefied natural gas that are, you know, extraordinarily expensive, and that has to be repaid by the people who use the gas. That's people like me and everybody else in the country, ordinary people who are already struggling to pay their bills, when the prices don't yet even cover the risk, the war premium has been added since Russia invaded Ukraine, let alone the additional price that that would eventually be levied upon us. When Russian gas stops flowing down the east to west pipes that feed Europe, um, so it, it's like it's one thing to say we will outbid um, Asia for for liquefied natural gas. The other thing is is saying, well, okay, but if if you're out there bidding for if you're a company bidding for you know bidding for liquid natural gas cargos, and you know your the, the cargo prices, the price of the fuel in the cargos are going for you know eighty, ninety, a hundred, more than a hundred million dollars per cargo you've you've got to be certain you can actually sell that fuel at the other end and 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 at the moment people are absorbing it but but what happens when consumers literally just stop burning gas because it's like it really has come to that question of well i turn on the gas boiler or i feed my kids you know it's it's like yeah i think you, you can probably do more to stay warm than you can to survive going without food and those literally are the, 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 the hard choices that are being faced by consumers um, and those hard choices are only going to become harder and harder as the the full economic fallout from the energy crisis really feeds through into into consumer bills in the next six months and more um, and next winter is going to be extremely, extremely challenging, extremely scary for for, for a lot of people um so that's a bit of a ramble i started talking about offshore wind and then went into gas and marginal pricing um but um yeah so this let's get back to the strategy shall we the uk security of supply strategy which i have to say it's a complete misnomer it's it is not strategic um it is it is not um uh, it doesn't really address security of supply in any meaningful way um I'll give it this though. It, 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 it does relate to energy, you know. <laughs> if you look at if you look at the security of supply strategy, it's like it's not very strategic, but it is about energy. But it's just not about the kind of the energy solutions that we need right now, unfortunately. Um, and just a quick reminder: if you are listening live, this is a live show. Uh, but um, I've been rambling about loads and loads and loads of different things. Um, to to raise your hand if you want to to ask me a quick question, before I. Hang up this cool um i 've been going on and on and on um i don 't know if there's much more to say about the the strategy, apart from uh, yeah i mean the've got the ambitions for hydrogen, so yeah we 've got like ten gigawatts now of hydrogen that are going to come online supposedly by two thousand and thirty again that 's so ambitious it 's in the kind of stupid category frankly i just i just can 't see the u k having ten gigawatts of of hydrogen production capacity online by 2030. That's a doubling of the previous target, which is already seen as unachievable. Um, And there's this kind of very vague wording. That's the other thing about this strategy. It's so vague. So it's all about uh, targets of up to this and up to that. And it's like, well, yeah, but like up to just means anything between adding nothing and the amount that you have specified. All you're doing is you'll actually, there's a cap on ambition. You're just saying we're going to cap our ambition at this much. So up to 10 gigawatts and up will come from from electrolyzing water using renewable energy, so-called green hydrogen. So let's just let's just imagine that you're going to do that, shall we? You're going to have these 10 gigawatts of electrolyzer. How are you going to power them? You're going to have to have renewable power powering them. Otherwise, it's not green hydrogen. If you just pull it off the grid, it's just electrolyzing uh, water using gas fired power generation, which is utterly pointless. Um, because it's just a, a massive, massive waste of energy because hydrogen is, just hydrogen is an energy vector. It's not a fuel source. It has an energy cost to be created. And, and there's an energy cost when you convert it from being hydrogen and back into another energy vector. Um, so so, yeah, if you're going to be electrolyzing water using anything other than pure play, wind or solar, then you're looking at grid power, which is you know burning fuel um, principally. Um so so that's just okay so let's just bear that in mind when we think about 10 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity by 2030 and then think about this um the government effectively has a moratorium on the development of onshore wind um and that moratorium is uh is stopping the development of new wind farms from coming forwards um because supposedly they're unsightly people don't like it now onshore wind is the cheapest form of um of like low zero carbon power generation and onshore wind is being hindered. So how are we going to power these ten gigawatts of electrolyzers if we don't use um onshore wind, don't turn to onshore wind? It just seems like there's no joined up thinking. This is supposed to be a strategy. There's no evidence of strategic thinking within this strategy anywhere. Um so so if you don't have onshore wind, how are you gonna have ten gigawatts of of uh of hydrogen production, I, I I don't know. Because, like, those offshore wind turbines, they're going to be, you know, meeting electricity demand. And if you just plonk a whole load of electrolyzers on the grid and say we're going to power them using renewables, it's like, well, OK, so you're removing a load of renewables from the grid and you're going to be pushing them into powering electrolyzers. I, like, <laughs> how how does that help security of supply? It's just adding demand to the grid for a fuel that, frankly, isn't needed because if you were to um, just burn gas directly in a gas boiler, that's a more effective way of heating your home than it is by burning hydrogen, which has been electrolyzed using gas-fired power generation, or um, indeed for that matter, a heat pump, which is powered using el- electricity from the grid or electricity from, uh, uh, from any other source. So I just can't see how putting hydrogen at the heart of an energy security strategy makes any sense at all um it's completely insane um i think that's probably enough of a rant for today i've been going on and on and on um but thank you for listening if you've come this far um then um i hopefully haven't bored you to death but um just a quick reminder before i sign off um do head on over to www.energyflux.news check out the newsletter um you can sign up for free email updates if you're not ready to subscribe but like i said at the beginning if you do subscribe between now and wednesday you're going to get a massive discount on the annual cost of uh, premium membership uh to the energy flux newsletter so go on to www.energyflux.news have a look there's lots of free content on there have a poke around look in the archive um there's probably something of interest if you're into energy then you're going to find something that you're going to want to read there um right that's enough for me uh thank you very much for listening and um yeah i'll hopefully potentially See you next week for another edition, um, if not the week after that. Thanks, bye.